chapter 15, I, uh, and I preloaded us with the understanding that chapter 15 is, is pretty dense theologically, and so we're going to take a, a week just to look at and, and really dive deep on the sixth verse of chapter 15. So if you want to open to uh, Genesis, that's on page 12 of your pew Bibles. And we will uh, look at that verse, like I said, in depth today. How many of you uh, by the, know the name of uh, Frank Lloyd Wright? Anybody know that name, Frank Lloyd Wright? Some of you do. He's considered one of America's uh, architectural geniuses and uh, has come to be kind of a national treasure of ours. His creative and revolutionary designs in the early part of the 20th century were groundbreaking. And if you go see some of them today, they still impress. One of the most famous of his designs was for his friend, uh, his nature lover, Edgar Kaufman. Kaufman commissioned Wright to design his dream house in western Pennsylvania, in the woods near Pittsburgh, with a view of a falls called Bear Run Falls that he loved. What Wright presented him with was something that had never been considered before. He built the house on top of the falls. Falling Water, as it was named, was and still is one of the finest examples of man-made structures blending into its natural environment. Construction began in 1936, and Kaufman brought in consulting engineers to double-check Wright's designs. When the engineers reported that the foundational support beams of the house were not strong enough and a better foundation needed to be laid, Wright was infuriated. His massive ego would refuse to let him admit any shortcomings and building went ahead. And, and when the house was finished in 1939, it became an instant classic. It also began instantly sagging. Beneath the breathtaking facade of falling water was a structural nightmare. By 1995, the building was in such critical condition that without immediate attention, falling water was going to fall into the water. Engineers were brought in to fix the foundation at a cost of 11 million dollars. Frank Lloyd Wright's design was beautiful, creative, groundbreaking, flawless, except for the foundation. Foundations are the most basic and critical element to get right. Whether you're talking about a building, a business, or the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything, if the foundation is off in the slightest bit, everything will be off that's built on top of it. That's why Paul wrote to the Corinthians, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.11 what Paul is saying is that the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ is foundation, the, is critical. The foundation of your gospel that you believe is critical 
to get right. That's why throughout scriptures, Jesus is called what? The cornerstone. It's that stone in the building that's laid first perfectly, double, triple, quadruple checking, because every other stone that is laid is measured towards that stone. We see that mentioned in Psalm 118, Jesus' cornerstone in Isaiah 28, Zechariah 10, Acts 4, Ephesians 2, Luke 20, 1 Peter 2, and on and on and on. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, is a cornerstone verse. If we do not understand this verse correctly, everything that you believe and build on top of it is skewed. If we do not understand this, our faith and works is skewed. How we approach God will be off. How the gospel reorients us and our hearts and lives will be off. How we relate to each other will be off. Last week we covered it very briefly, but today I want to spend more time looking at this critical verse. You know, I'm one who marks up your Bible, and I encourage you to, if you're a Bible marker, underline this verse in Genesis. Here is the verse, verse 6 of chapter 15. And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. I'm going to tell you what this verse is saying right up front, and then we're going to unpack it. What this verse is saying is Abraham simply believed God's promise of a coming Savior by the gift of faith alone, and God credited righteousness credited a perfect record into Abram's account for that belief. Let me say it another way and shorter. Abram was justified before God apart from any works by the gift of faith alone. Here it is. Abram was justified before God apart from any works by the gift of faith alone. That's the foundation. What is contained in this verse is the first biblically overt declaration of the doctrine of justification alone. This is the first overt declaration in Scripture of the doctrine, which is what we're going to be talking about today, of justification by faith alone. That you are saved by faith alone, apart from any works whatsoever. That you are given the faith to believe in the promises of God. Let me say that again. You are given the faith to believe the promises of God. And that gift of faith, by that gift of faith, through that gift, God imputes, God reckons righteousness, God credits righteousness, God gives you perfect righteousness. This doctrine is so important that Martin Luther wrote, when justification by faith alone has fallen, everything has fallen. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. 
and without it, the church cannot exist for one hour. The Tom, uh, Thomas Watson, the Puritan, wrote, Justification is the very hinge and pillar of Christianity. An error about justification is dangerous like a defect in a foundation. It is the spring of the water of life. And to introduce the poison of corrupt doctrine into this spring, he writes, is damnable. We're on serious ground here today. If you get this wrong, you get the, do- the, the gospel of Jesus Christ wrong. If this seems too strong, you might not fully understand the doctrine of justification. Because this doctrine answers the questions, how can a continually sinful man such as myself be right with God? It answers the question, if all who are born in rebe- are in rebellion to God, a la Gen- uh, Romans 1, 2, and 3, how can a person ever hope to become God's friend? This doctrine of justification by faith answers the second diagnostic question of evangelism explosion. Some of you remember that. It was the alpha of 35, 40 years ago. The second question you're supposed to ask somebody is, if God asked you why he should let you into his heaven, what would you reply? The doctrine of justification says it's by Christ's righteousness alone, which is a gift through faith and not of works. All these questions and more are answered in what turns out to be five Hebrew words. And Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. So let's start out briefly by covering several misinterpretations of this verse. What are some faulty foundations? That, that we have come maybe even by osmosis to believe about the foundation of the gospel. Well, the first one is, it's not, this is not Abraham's conversion. Sometimes you're reading along, you go, ah, oh, here's where Abraham believed. He finally believed God. Chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter, 4, uh, chapter 15. The Hebrew verb translated believed here is is a verb that is better translated, he remained firm in the Lord. Or he continued to believe. Abraham's conversion was back in chapter 12, verse 1. Why is this important? The scripture is not telling us here that Abraham finally believed. That saving faith is not built upon what God had done for him in the last four chapters. Okay, well, you know, he saved me here, he supplied here, he, he got me here. Okay, well, I guess God has built up enough credit. I'll believe. That is not what this verse is saying. Chapters 12 through 14 was not a proving ground for God. This is critical because many approach trusting God like that, don't we? I know, as I was preparing this message, I see fissures and cracks in my own faith. 
Don't we approach God that way? Okay, God, you know, give me a couple more things that you're faithful on, and then I'll put my full weight on you. We have a faith as long as God continues to prove himself. Once God, from our perspective, doesn't come through, Allah, my spouse dies, a child dies, something tragic happens, something big enough happens where we go, I guess I can't trust God. That all flows out of a faulty foundation. Second faulty foundation, God was looking for someone with a little faith and found Abraham. Or put another way, faith was something that Abram already had. That Abram had the faith to believe God's promises, thus God justified him. That's a faulty reading of this verse. As I will allude to in a moment, Abram was a perfectly happy, wealthy, well-connected moon worshiper in Ur. He had no reason to believe God or follow God. And God gave him the gift of faith to believe and follow. The crack in this foundation is that faith is something you generate, something you possess, not God-given. Now, as we'll see, faith is something that is 100% given to us by God. Third faulty foundation is a riff on, on the previous one, that faith is something that we can quantify. Faith is something we can quantify. This is the great foundational crack of the word faith ministries, of the name it, claim it ministries, of the Catherine Coleman's or the Benny Hinn's or the Joel Osteen's to hit the generations. Depending on how much faith you have, you can move that mountain. How much do you need to do that? If you don't have enough faith, things don't change. The crack in this foundation is absolutely catastrophic for you. Absolutely catastrophic. As we'll see, it is totally self-centered and leads to guilt, shame, fear, and anger towards God. Just to name a few. Then we can also turn to the faulty foundation, not just of our faith, but of our understanding of righteousness. The second half of the verse, if you will. And a big one here is something we can all relate to and we all struggle with all the time. And that is righteousness is something that we earn. Righteousness is something that we earn. Here we step into the vast realm of all of our fleshly hearts. We're all guilty of this, some degree or another. We all slip in and out of this, some degree or another. This is how we all naturally, man-made, think salvation works. I do enough good, thus, ipso facto, I get rewarded. 
I do this, I get that. I do good things, God counts it towards my righteousness. I do enough good, I get in. And the fissure in that foundation is you will always be chasing assurance of your faith. You'll always, like a dog chasing its tail, you'll always be chasing assurance. Where's my assurance? How can I be sure that I am in God's hand? Your continual sin will always keep you asking the question, am I really saved? And we're all in that realm of continually sinning. And so if we don't have a firm foundation of what justification is, we'll be chasing our tails. With that being said, in 15.6 and all throughout Scripture, righteousness is always reckoned to you, counted towards your account, given to you, Credited in your ledger. I'm using actually biblical translation words to, to, in many different angles to try and help us understand this. We tend to think that righteousness, that the righteousness that opens the gates of heaven is something earned, something I do. When salvific righteousness, that righteousness that you rest on for salvation, is 100% reckoned to you, given to you credited to you. Perhaps you're sitting here thinking, my pastor is a little extreme today. Maybe he had a tough week. He's really using hyperbolic terms. We'll give him a little, you know, listen to him lightly today. Perhaps you're feeling perhaps the, the cracks may be in your own foundation. I don't know. But because a faulty foundation in this doctrine leads to either guilt or pride. It leads to either guilt, or uh, I'm sorry, it leads to either pride of self-importance, of self-centeredness, of self-righteousness, uh, pressure to do good works out of have-to-or-else mentality, a quid pro quo relationship with your Heavenly Father, I do this, you do that. Or it leads to a futile striving to have more faith. A guilt around not having enough faith. A pressure to do good works. Or the crush of not having enough righteousness to satisfy God. I don't have enough. I haven't done enough. I've said that. Have you said that? My goodness, I've said that. But the fruit of a firm foundation here leads to assurance and rest and exhale. A satisfaction in God. It's beautiful. A hope. A love that drives you. It sets our hearts on a trajectory of loving others authentically, not because we have to. Sacrificially, 
openly. It positions our works correctly. It makes them selfless. It makes them God-glorifying, not self-glorifying. And in a response, it sets our works in a response of what God has done for us. All of this and more flow from a correct understanding of Genesis 15.6. And so I want to spend the remainder of our time building a firm foundation for us on what justification by faith alone means in its implications. The New Testament quotes this very verse three different times in its entirety. So we're going to look at two of those in depth and mention the third to help us build a firm foundation. The first place we want us to travel to is Galatians chapter 3. So turn with your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. That's on page 1155 of your pew Bible, 1155. Galatians was written as a defense against three charges. Galatians was written by Paul, probably one of the earliest epistles, written as a defense of three charges. Chapters 1 and 2, Paul defends the charge that he's not a true apostle. That's the first two chapters. The last two chapters, chapters 5 and 6, Paul answers the charge that Paul's preaching of this free gift of justification through faith alone produces lax living and immorality. The middle two chapters is the heart of the letter. In those two chapters, Paul answers the charge that faith and works are necessary for true, authentic salvation. That was the, the fissure in the foundation of the Galatian church that Paul wants to address. Faith and works are necessary to which Paul emphatically claims that justification before God is through faith alone. Justification is through faith alone, which is a gift of God. That's what he is saying in these two chapters. And if you look at verse 1 of chapter 3, you hear his very words to the Galatians on this, who say, faith plus works. And Paul says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun with the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of of Abraham. Paul directly quotes Genesis 15:6 as a proof text for salvation by faith alone. 
The Galatian church had drifted away from the gospel by adding obediences. In their case, we think circumcision was one of them. Maybe considering Gentiles unclean, this kind of racial separation. We're not really specifically told what the, the, the exact works are. But it was certainly, he was addressing a gospel and here. He was addressing faith and here. But Paul's reaction is, tells the tale, doesn't it? Twice. How foolish. You know, the exclamation points in our English translations is simply showing that the verb is an imperative there. And he asks them three rhetorical questions to prove how foolish this notion is. He first says, did you receive the Spirit by something you did or simply believing by faith? And the answer he, he's, he's drawing out of the, the Galatians is by faith. I didn't do anything. Second question he asks is, are you trying to now earn a gift? Earn a gift. Can you see how foolish that is and why he would say that? Gift, and now you're trying to earn it. The second, third thing he says is, did miracles you witness happen because of something you did? He gets more to the, to the physical here. Okay, you saw miracles, right? It, is that anything engendered from you? Did you do something in order for that poof of smoke to happen, so to speak? And, he, and of course, again, if something happens because you did something, it is not a miracle. He's using logic here. It's all by faith. And then he says, look at our father. He draws on Abraham. It was the same with him when he was saved. His salvation was all by faith. Abraham believed God. His righteousness, his salvation came through the gift of faith alone. No obedience whatsoever. Happy moon worshiper people. Let me be clear. Obedience has its right place in the Christian life. James 2, where we see the third quote, of this verse makes it perfectly clear. James uses that to argue for faith without works is dead. But I believe what James is doing is he's putting works, our obedience, in the right place holder. Obedience gives evidence to authentic faith, he says over and over again. These things that you're doing actually are the fruit of your justification by faith alone. J.C. Ryle put it this way, tell me not of your justification unless you have also some marks of sanctification. I think that's fair. He goes on to say, boast not of Christ's work in you unless you can show us the Spirit's work through you. I think that's fair. But lest that, we, that take hold of our heart, let me be as clear about what we are saying about what he about uh, Genesis fifteen six, obedience never, ever, ever plays a part in your salvation, in your justification before God. 
That's what Paul stresses in verse 7 of Galatians 3. He says, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The idea of obedience works, earning salvation in any way, is the poison that Thomas Watson was pointing to. That's what Paul goes on to say in Galatians chapter 3. For all who rely on the law are what? Under a curse. If you're relying on obedience in your righteousness, the curse is still active. And again, he says, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. And he quotes Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous will live by faith. That's the way it's always been, he's saying. If we believe that our faith is in any way from us, it is like mixing a bad ingredient into concrete. I have a brother-in-law, Tim, who worked construction for a bunch of years and became like an expert in concrete. They kind of gave that job over to him. So he told me that there are different mixing ratios for different applications of concrete. I had no idea about this. I just thought you put these ratios together and you got it. His job was critical because if the mix was wrong, the whole project they were building could be in danger. So let's say that one day Tim took it upon himself to add an ingredient that he thought might help strengthen this concrete. I just came up with iron ore because I think iron is strong. Maybe he takes some iron ore and he mixes it in there because he thinks this will make a stronger foundation. He might have all the good intentions in the world. He really might. But what he is mixing there is a disaster waiting to happen. Because he's, he's, he's fooling with the basic formula of concrete. So if you think that any of your faith comes from you, any of your faith comes from you. You're mixing an ingredient into your salvation that will be catastrophic. It's like mixing an ingredient into the concrete that isn't supposed to be there. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Listen very closely to these words because they're so precise is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one can boast. Our flesh so desires people. I feel the pull all the time. Our flesh so desires to want to be part of this. And sometimes it, it's a good desire, but most of the time it's, it's a sinful desire. We so desire to want to be part of our own salvation that we're willing to read that and kind of disregard it. We disregard clear teachings by Scripture, by Jesus himself. Do you remember in Matthew 16 when, when uh, he turned to his disciples and he said, who do people say that I am? 
just give me some feedback on my ministry so far. We're about halfway through. Who, who do people say that I am? And they go, well, some people say you're Elijah, come back. Some people say that you're, you're Jeremiah. Some people say you're, you're John the Baptist, even. And he goes, he looks at them. And I think he, he, he just take, takes in their eyes for a second. And he goes, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter pipes up and says these words. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's saying, Peter is saying, you are the Messiah, the long-awaited one, the Genesis 3 serpent crusher that we've been waiting for. And you know what Jesus says to him? He said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but the Father who is in heaven. God gave Peter that insight by faith. Alistair McGrath says, The faith by which we are justified is faith. Faith is like a channel through which the benefits of Christ flow to us. We are not justified on account of faith. That's the quantity we're talking about. We are justified through faith. It is the work of Christ, not our faith, which is the foundation of justification. Faith, the channel, is a gift of God. So, we have to understand the first half of Genesis 15.6. Abraham believed God. Faith alone. But then we also have to understand the foundation of the second half of what was said there, and God counted it to him as righteousness. The foundational principle of imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness. Our righteousness is declared by God. That's what imputed means. It's declared by God. Different translations use reckon, credited, counted, Declared. They all trying to convey the same idea. A right standing before God is imputed, given, declared. Christ's perfect righteousness or record, or record is given to our account. It's, it, let me think of it like a bank transaction. He has, we don't. He credits it to our account. It's not something we become in salvation. I want to be very very clear here on the wording. It's not something we become in salvation. That's, that's another doctrine. That's sanctification. Us becoming more Christ-like progressively due to the Spirit's working in our life. We don't become righteous when we're saved. And if you need evidence of that, just hang around me, honestly. The people that hang around me can, can tell you this. You don't become righteous when you're saved. You don't become perfect. But you do become a person who desires to be like Christ. And that's sanctification. Now, our salvation depends on being declared righteous by God. And when Abraham believed God's promise... He did not become righteous more instantly. We're going to see that in the very next chapter, aren't we? 
If you read ahead, if you're a read-aheader, you go to 16 and you see, oh my goodness, the thing that he just believed, he's disbelieving. He's falling on. But he was given the full credit of perfect righteousness in God's sight. This is what David was hanging his hopes on in Romans 4. And I invite you to turn there. That's the second place that this verse is used in the New Testament. It's on page 119 of the Pew Bible. Romans chapter 4. In the first four chapters of Romans, Paul is building an argument about justification by faith alone. First, he lays out God's wrath towards sin is perfectly just. That both Gentiles and Jews, to their surprise, are equally under God's judgment and punishment. And that absolutely no one is righteous in the sight of God. And that comes to a crescendo in, in chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. No one is righteous, no, not one. All people are sinful, all have turned away. Oh, mouths of open graves, he quotes, he draws from the Psalms. To just put this litany together of no one is righteous. Then he drops the atomic gospel bomb, which is verses 21 to 31 in chapter 3, in which he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation an atoning sacrifice, another translation, by his blood to be received by faith. A person is put right, justified before God by grace that is a gift. And your righteousness is credited to you. And to prove this, Paul once again draws on Abraham in chapter 4. Look at verse 1. It says, What then shall we say is gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works... He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David, also speaking of this blessing, of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. Quoting Psalm 32, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Paul draws on two of Israel's greatest figures to prove his point about this righteousness being given and not earned. First, Abraham. Abraham was not righteous by his works but a perfect record was credited to him. But Paul also draws on David, and this is fascinating. This is really, this is where the rubber meets the road in David. David really got this doctrine. And you know this because of Psalm 32 that he quotes. You also know this because we know a little of David's life, don't we? The big event in his life, one of the big events in any way, is his sin with Bathsheba. And in that sin, he breaks at least three of the Ten Commandments, right? He commits adultery. He lies about it. 
And then he premeditates murder, doesn't he? Now, why, why would David really cherish the doctrine of justification by faith alone? That, that, that righteousness is given to him and not earned. Well, I'll tell you. Adultery and lying? You could go to the temple and you could provide a sacrifice that would make atonement with God. Premeditated murder? No sacrifice. It's a death sentence. David knew that. And so when he was given the gift, when he understood that righteousness was given to him, he knew that it was something he could never earn. He knew he was under a death sentence. David got it. He said, he wrote, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. He's writing about himself, guys. And whose sins are covered. He's, tears are flowing from his, from his face onto the parchment. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Why? Because it was given to him. He's alive in writing that because he gets it. And I wonder sometimes if I get it like that. David got it. His sin was not counted against him because he was declared righteous. He didn't earn that, his life. He understood that the only way to be righteous was that it had to be given. He could not, under the Mosaic law, earn life. And do we take our death sentence as serious as David did? Do we read that over and over in Scripture? The wages of my sin is death. There's nothing I can do. There's no sacrifice I can make. There's no good deeds I can do enough that will save me from death. Do we realize there is no way back to God on our own like David did. David was hopeless until he got the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Do we cling to and cherish the righteous righteousness imputed to us like David did? Do we think about it? Do we praise God for it? Do we cherish the perfect righteousness of Christ Credited to our account. Given. Do we rely on Christ's righteousness alone for our salvation? Is that what we cling to? John Piper writes this. The imputed righteousness hang in imputed righteousness. This justification by faith alone. Hangs the fullness of the glory of God's grace And on this hangs the fullness of the enjoyment of your peace in justification. Because, and listen to this, people. Because when I stand by your bed in the hour of your death, I want to be able to look down into your face and remind you of the most comforting words in all of the world. And have you rejoice with the solid biblical understanding 
in what I mean when I say, remember, Christ is your righteousness. Christ is your righteousness. Your righteousness is in heaven. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It doesn't get better when your faith is strong. It doesn't get worse when your faith is weak. It is perfect. It is Christ. Look away from yourself. Rest in him. Lean on him. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. Spirit, we pray that you will do the work that you have been commissioned to do, which is change us through the preached word of God. I thank you that all of your sheep here have malleable hearts. Shape them. In Jesus' name, amen.